Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Africa is a land with endless stories to tell. From epic battles, brilliant rulers, and the dramatic rise and fall of civilizations, join us on the History of Africa podcast to learn the oft-ignored stories of the African continent. From the sands of Cairo to the plains of Zimbabwe, and from the mountains of Ethiopia to the forests of the Congo, find the History of Africa podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, just a reminder that if you enjoy this podcast and want to help it grow and keep going, then it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave a like or a comment or a rating or a subscribe on whatever platform you use. We also have a Patreon and if you're willing and able to give $3, $5, $10 a month, you'll get various things in return and it will be greatly appreciated no matter how much it is and no matter how long you can do it for. Anything at all helps to keep this going and helps to keep it free. And speaking of Patreon, I actually have some patrons to thank. So, sincerely, thank you to Janet Kearns, Jennifer Ross, Sarah M., and Michelle Leonbron. I hope I pronounced your names correctly. If I didn't, please get in touch and I will redo this. Thank you. Getting the pronunciation right the next time. So, without further ado, here is the episode. I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, episode 20, The Heirs of Penda. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the direct heirs of Penda, who ruled Mercia from their father and grandfather's death in 655 to 716 at which point Mercia came under the kingship of the descendants of Penda's mysterious older brother, Eowa, who you'll recall from last episode. You'll also recall from the last episode that after Penda's death in 655, at the Battle of Winward, Mercia was divided by the Northumbrian king Oswiu into northern Mercia and southern Mercia. In the south, Oswiu set up his son-in-law, Peada, who was also the eldest son of Penda, and had been the ruler of the Middle Angles under his father. This state of affairs didn't last too long, though, since within a year, in 656, Peada was murdered by his wife, at which point Oswiu assumed direct rule over all of Mercia. Several years later, in 658, a group of Northumbrian nobles took the opportunity of Oswiu's troubles with the Picts to launch a rebellion in the name of Penda's second oldest son, Wolfhera. This rebellion successfully overthrew the Northumbrian domination of Mercia and set up Wolfhera as ruler of a kingdom that had regained its independence. But who was Wolfhera? As said, he was the son of Penda. He was also a Christian. 
he still favoured war and conquest as a primary means of asserting his domination, but he also used the diplomatic tools open to him as a Christian. We don't know exactly when he became a Christian. A common theme in early Anglo-Saxon history is exiled princes converting or at least being heavily influenced in favour of Christianity. Think Edwin, Oswald, Oswiu. So possibly Wolf Herod became a Christian during his period in hiding. But we don't know where he was hiding, so that kind of makes the question impossible to answer. What is certain, though, is that one benefit of his being a Christian is that it encouraged the production of land charters. In both Mercia and among Wolf Herod's subkings, since the overlord was required to consent to any land grants made by his subkings. In these charters, we see Wolf Herod fully embracing the role of Christian overlord and promoting the use of written charters as a mechanism of royal government. This is of great use for us as historians because it means that where Pender's supremacy needs to be inferred from written evidence produced by other people, in Wolf Herod's case, we have hard documentary evidence showing where outside Mercia he was able to grant land, demonstrating his superiority over the local kings, and explicitly identifying the kings of various smaller kingdoms as subjects to Wolf Herod's overlordship. In other words, with Wolf Herod, Mercian supremacy becomes an undeniable historical fact, rather than something to be found by reading between the lines, as it was inescapably with his father. So what was the extent and nature of Wolf Herod's supremacy? For much of his reign, it was limited pretty much entirely to southern England, and involved his conquest and patronage of various smaller kings as a means to undermine and surround various powerful kingdoms such as Wessex and Kent. The tone for his reign was set by one of his first acts. In 661, according to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, Wolf Hera harried the Isle of Wight and gave it and land on the mainland to the King of Sussex, who was his godson through baptism. Bede identifies the land on the mainland as the Mayon Valley in Hampshire, home of the Mayon wearer mentioned in the tribal hidage, which reflects an encroachment by Mercia into Wessex, surely a statement of Wolf Hera's power and confidence. In this one event, we see both continuity and innovation in Mercian attitudes to power. Continuity, in that military force wedded to familial bonds is still clearly the main tool of Mercian diplomacy, as it was under Pender, but innovation in Wolf Herod's diplomatic use of Christianity. Where Pender had to rely on marriage and blood kinship, Wolf Herod was able to use spiritual kinship as well to build his power. In return for baptism, Wolf Herod not only gave land in West Saxon territory to the King of Sussex, but implicitly he also vowed to defend this land against any attempt the West Saxons took to reconquer it. The West Saxons elsewhere seem to have been the major target of Wolf Herod's militarism. They were historically a powerful kingdom, as will be seen in future episodes. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle also refers to Wolf Herod's harrying the Anglo-Saxons at Ashdown in the same year. Ashdown was a historical name for an unidentified place in the Berkshire Downs. This raiding in 661 is yet further evidence for Wolf Herod's attempts to assert his dominance over Wessex. Wolf Herod was also responsible for bringing London into the Mercian sphere of influence, although exactly when he did this is unclear. Around the time of his war in 661, the bishopric of Dorchester passed into Mercian control. The new bishop, Wiener, a few years later, purchased the See of London from Wolf Herod. This indicates that 
by the mid-660s, the Kings of Mercia had the ability to control access to London. This control probably stemmed from their overlordship of the East Saxons, which Bede tells us Wolfhera held at this time. It was also helpful that Wolfhera was overlord of Surrey as well. In one of the earliest authentic charters, a grant by sub-king Frithewald of Surrey to Chertsey, issued in 672 to 674, offers us the first recorded reference to the Port of London, possibly suggesting that under Wolfhera, London had begun to be developed again. Here I'll just take a quick moment to summarise briefly the history of Anglo-Saxon London up to this point. The Romans, of course, had built the city of Londinium, but that had been abandoned with the fall of Roman Britain and had been allowed to fall into ruin. At some point, Saxon settlers established themselves further down the River Thames at the site of what is now the Strand, where they built a settlement that came to be called Londonwick. This settlement, importantly, existed entirely outside of the ruins of Londinium, and it was only under King Alfred that Londinium was actually resettled as well and rebuilt. Thus, whenever I refer to London prior to the reign of King Alfred, I'm referring to Londonwick on the site of the Strand, and not to Londinium. The development of Londonwick under Wolfhera possibly tells us something about the economic benefits of supremacy, since through London, the Mercians gained access to the profits of international trade, which had begun to boom with the rise of other ports elsewhere in England. These ports, if you recall, were called Wicks in Old English, and you can see the episode on the Augustinian mission for more information on them. The economic motive for supremacy is also seen elsewhere in the lands of the Witcher, where, under Wolfhera, we find the first evidence for Mercian control of the Worcestershire settlement of Droitwich, often just called Wick, in the charts of the time. From the time of the Romans, the salt pits at Droitwich had been the main source for salt in Britain. Salt was particularly valuable as a preservative, and so the salt business at Droitwich became extremely lucrative. While the kings of the Witcher continued to grant lands within the kingdom, under Wolfhera's supervision, of course, the rights to the salt pits seemed to have passed from their control into Wolfhera's, suggesting that he sought to monopolise Mercian access to this most valuable of resources. The control of Droitwich and the redevelopment of London all suggest that under Wolfhera, there was a concerted effort to reap the economic benefits of supremacy. While Wolfhera's supremacy was definitely most prominent in the south, he, there is one example of his supremacy in the north as well, that being the control of the Kingdom of Lindsay. In 669, he was able to gift church lands in Lindsay to St. Chad, the first Bishop of Lichfield. This brings us to Wolfhera's key role in establishing the church in Mercia, something his father had never forbidden, but which, given his paganism, he never patronised himself. In 669, Wolfhera contacted the new Archbishop of Canterbury, Theodore, and requested that he send him a bishop. Theodore refused to consecrate an inexperienced bishop for what was essentially a mission into a pagan land, and instead he recalled a Northumbrian priest named Chad, Chad first appears in the record as the abbot of the monastery of Lastingham, but he became a major character when he was selected by King Oswiu to serve as the Bishop of York. But Chad was a victim of the confusing career of Wilfred, 
You see, Chad had been selected as Bishop of York, while Wilfred, the official Bishop of York, was off in Francia for reasons that are unknown, but that may have been related to an unsuccessful rebellion against Oswiu. This created a problem, since two people could not be bishops of the same place at the same time. When Wilfred returned to England in 666, he apparently accepted Chad, but continued to unofficially consecrate priests at his various monastic foundations. In 669, when Archbishop Theodore was sent by Pope Vitalian to reform the English church, he was struck by Chad's genuine piety and humility, but nevertheless sided with Wilfred. In recognition of Chad's virtues, he acknowledged that he had genuinely been ordained a bishop, but he also forced him to retire, at which point Chad returned to Lastingham. Within the year, though, Wolfhera requested a bishop for Mercia, and Theodore opted to send Chad. When he arrived, Chad was consecrated at Repton, a monastery founded by a mission of Northumbrian monks, including Chad's brother Ched. But Chad opted to move his see from Repton to the settlement of Lichfield, possibly due to it already being the site of the cult of some Christian martyrs from the Roman period. Probably also Lichfield's proximity to Watling Street, the main Roman road connecting southern and northern England, played some role in the move, since Lichfield was both centrally located within Mercia and offered a means of easily traversing the length of the kingdom. Wolfhera granted Chad land to establish a monastery there, and he did so using monks from Lastingham. Like most missionary dioceses, Chad's Lichfield was enormous, stretching literally from coast to coast, south of the Humber, something that Theodore would eventually correct. Chad was only Bishop of Mercia for a few years before his death in 672, but Lichfield remained from his point on the centre of the Mercian church. As his reign progressed, it's clear that Wolfhera began to covet supremacy north of the Humber. In 674, B tells us that he attempted to unite all the kings of southern England under his banner to launch a war against Edgefrith and Northumbria, with the goal of making Edgefrith tributary to him. Despite being outnumbered, Edgefrith nevertheless was able to defeat Wolfhera, and drove him back south of the Humber, in the process also capturing control of Lindsay. In 675, no doubt still wounded from the loss to Edgefrith, Wolfhera attempted another campaign against Wessex, which resulted in one inconclusive battle, shortly after which Wolfhera died under unknown circumstances. Hi listeners, I wanted to take a second to tell you about the sponsor of today's episode, Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, restaurant-quality, and dietitian approved and it's all ready to go in two minutes with minimal meal prep. I've had some fantastic meals like butter chicken and tomato risotto with Factor. And I've got to say, I've been extremely impressed with all of them. They genuinely are restaurant quality. You'll get over 35 different options to choose from every week if you try out Factor, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, with pancakes, smoothies, and more, there's over 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and ready to go throughout the day. Factor also works around your schedule. You can order as little or as much as you need each week, and they even let you reschedule deliveries any time of when those unexpected somethings happen to pop up. And to top it all off, Factor is cheaper than ordering takeout, so it really is a smart move to try it out. Get started today and get after your goals. 
If you're interested in trying Factor, head to factormeals.com slash anglo50 and use code anglo50 to get 50% off. That's code anglo50 at factormeals.com slash anglo50 to get 50% off. So to answer the question I asked a bit earlier in the podcast, what was the nature of Wolf Harris supremacy? Effectively, Penders and Wolf Harris reigns represent the earliest phase of Mercian supremacy. And this phase is most dominated by the continuing presence of Northumbria as a major buffer to Mercian domination. This would not always be the case, since under Wolfhera's successor, Northumbria's ability to exert control south of the Humber was effectively removed. But I'll talk more about that in a moment. I just want to briefly close the discussion of Wolfhera by raising an interesting historiographical question. Wolfhera is sometimes suggested to be the ruler behind the tribal hidage, which was discussed in episode 18. Since this document seems to reflect a level of Mercian domination south of the Humber comparable to that which Wolfhera achieved, in truth this in itself isn't a good enough argument to definitely link the Tidage to Wolfhera, since later Mercian kings, especially Offa, achieved a comparable level of power. But I feel that it's important to note that Wolfhera is sometimes suggested to be the king who produced the Hydage, so that you can be aware of that in any extra reading you do. Anyway, after Wolfhera died, he was succeeded by his brother Ethelred. Now, I need to just bite one thing in the bud here. This Ethelred is not Ethelred the Unready. Anglo-Saxons had a lot of names, but there were some names that come up an awful lot in the evidence, and unfortunately Ethelred is one of them. Ethelred the Unready doesn't come into the picture until the 11th century, so quite a way away from here. The first act of Ethelred's reign suggested that he was going to follow a fairly similar trajectory to his brother. In 676, he launched a devastating invasion of Kent, which resulted in the destruction of Rochester. It's not clear why he invaded, but one interpretation is that the energetic Kentish king Hlothera may have been attempting to exploit Wolfhera's death by conquering Surrey and Essex, thus removing them from the Mercian sphere of influence. Seemingly, Ethelred was successful in preventing this from occurring. One feature that stands out about Ethelred is his extremely close relationship with Northumbria, although this didn't stop him coming into open conflict with the kings north of the Humber. At some point before 679, he married Osthrith, sister of Edgefrith, which, by the logic of early medieval diplomacy, certainly put him into the sphere of influence of the Northumbrian king. However, in 679, Edgefrith attempted to invade Mercia for an unknown reason, and this resulted in the Battle of Trent. The outcome of the battle is unclear, but Archbishop Theodore was required to intervene to arbitrate. The result was clearly in Ethelred's favour, since Lindsay was permanently separated from Northumbria and returned to Mercian control, and Northumbria's power south of the Humber was effectively ended. Although Ethelred and Edgefrith probably weren't aware that that was the result in the long term, but certainly Trent was a major setback for the Northumbrians, and probably directly contributed to their intensification of wars against the Picts, which of course would ultimately lead to Edgefrith's death, and the crumbling of the Northumbrian dynastic structure. 
Despite this success in the north, Ethelred nevertheless lost lands in the south. He held the Witcher, but by 688, the King of Wessex was granting land in Sussex and Surrey, where Mercians had previously been overlord, suggesting that the West Saxons had swept in to replace Wolfhera as overlord of these small southern kingdoms. It would be remiss of me to ignore the fact that, despite his two notable military successes, Ethelred does not seem to have been a particularly militaristic king. His main interests seem to have resided with religion. We know, for example, that he was a strong friend of Wilfred in his dispute with King Alfred. Ethelred is also remembered as a friend of the saintly monk Edwina, and his interest in religion would seemingly culminate in 704 with his choice to abdicate the throne and become a monk. There is some speculation that his choice may not have been entirely voluntary. In 697, Osthrith, his wife, had been murdered, Bede says by Mercian nobles. No one knows exactly why, but the usual interpretation is that it was caused by continuing hostility to Northumbria among the Mercians. Possibly, Ethelred was seen as too close to the Northumbrians, despite his success at Trent. It's also notable that when he abdicated in 704, he nominated Wolfhera's son, Coenred, as his successor, rather than his own son, Chaelred. Possibly, Chaelred was too young to be king, but it is interesting to speculate that possibly Mercian nobility had stepped in and demanded a return to Wolfhera's line. On the whole, Ethelred failed to maintain Wolfhera's supremacy, and his reign signals the beginning of a brief period of decline within Mercia, where the heirs of Penda seemingly lost all of their authority in the space of just over a decade. We know hardly anything about Ethelred's successor, Coenred. In Felix's Life of Guthlac, we are told that he was frequently troubled by Welsh raiders. That whole text is full of animosity towards the Welsh, even going so far in one case where the saint is described as being harassed by a bunch of demons, as saying that the language of demons is Welsh. In 709, we are told that Coenred went to Rome with King Offa of Essex with the intent of becoming a monk, and that he presumably died there. He was succeeded by Ethelred's son, Chaelred, and it is really under Chaelred that we see the authority of Penda's kin completely collapse. Like Coenred, we know very little about him, but what has survived is universally bad. There's clear evidence for political opposition. In the life of Guthlac, we're told that Athelbald, the man who would ultimately succeed Chaelred, and the one who is not related to Penda at all, spent time in exile before becoming king, possibly as a political exile driven there by Chaelred. We do know that he continued the Mercian tradition of waging war against Wessex, since in 715 it's recorded that he fought a battle against King Ina at a place called Woden's Barrow, but the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle doesn't say anything else, it doesn't even tell us who won the battle. The main record we have of Chaelred's reign is in remembrance by ecclesiastics of how incredibly sinful he was. A visionary monk from the monastery of Mutwenlock was recorded by St. Boniface as saying that Chaelred was so sinful that the angels, which are assigned to guard kings, had decided to withdraw their protection from him. Boniface himself, in a later letter to Athelbald, urged the new king of Mercia to reject the example of Chaelred, 
who, he said, fornicated with nuns and violated church lands. Finally, he says, Chaelred was driven to madness at a feast by a demon. Chaelred died in 716. He seemingly had no sons, although there is a local tradition at Worcester that he was succeeded by a relative named Chaelwald, but there is no other evidence anywhere for the existence of such a person. And even if Chaelred was succeeded by Chaelwald, Chaelwald was deposed almost immediately in favour of Athelbald. In terms of their large-scale impact on the history of Mercia, it's easiest to just it's easiest to just take Cohenred and Chaelred together. They both maintained their overlordship of the Whitcher, Magosata, and East Saxons, as well as the Kingdom of Lindsay in the north, as is seen by their confirming grants by these people's subkings. They also continued to grant land directly outside of the Mercian heartlands, but their reign seems to have really suffered from the encroachment of a resurgence Wessex and Kent, both of which effectively limited their ability to conquer more lands in the south of England. And by the time of Chaelred's death in 716, the direct heirs of Penda were seemingly exhausted in terms of political authority, since Athelbald was able to swiftly assume kingship of Mercia when they had gone, thus removing the direct heirs of Penda from power forever. But despite their final collapse, it's important to note the incredible achievements of the heirs of Penda. It was they who retained areas like Whitcher, Lindsay and London, and turned their subjection into multi-generational affairs by which they became inseparably parts of the Kingdom of Mercia, and not just dependent sub-kingdoms. Wolfhera also established a Christian kingship in Mercia, which made the Mercian kingdom sustainable in a way that it wouldn't have been if it had stayed pagan. Deriving as it did from a post-synod of Whitby, Northumbria, the type of Christianity that became dominant in Mercia was Roman Christianity, rather than the kind practised among the Britons, a distinction which further separated Mercia, which, if you'll recall, originated from various mixed communities of Anglians and Britons, from any ties of loyalty to the Britons. Instead, Wolfhera's conversion moved the Mercians decisively into being an Anglo-Saxon people, rather than an Anglo-British one. The question was, how would the next generation of Mercian rulers expand on this basis of supremacy established by Pender and his heirs? We'll get more into that in the next episode, when we look at the rise and incredibly successful career of King Athelbald of Mercia. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Once again, if you have, I'd like to ask that you like, subscribe, comment, follow, whatever it is you do on whatever platform you prefer. And if you're able to, please support our Patreon. Anything helps. But that's all for now. Thank you for listening. I've been your host, Tom Kearns, and this has been the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.